Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Kevin Stewart, who is currently the VP of Engineering at Harvest. Kevin joins us today from Seattle, Washington. Kevin Stewart, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks for having me. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of well-maintained or maintainable software? Oh, I'd say the first and foremost is simplicity. I think people really tend to forget that most things don't start out complex. They start out simple and grow to be complex over time. And if you have a really hard focus on keeping things as simple as can be, don't try to get too fancy with the technologies that you use or the patterns that you're applying, that'll just pay off for itself many times over. But on top of simplicity, we have to remember that software is made by people. And a lot of the challenges I've seen with keeping software maintainable has been people over time, whether it's people who are very familiar with the code base that they're dealing with, so they resist urges to adopt new things or do things that might make the code simpler over time, people who fall into ideological battles over the technologies they're using. That's the biggest hurdle. Changing technology is really not a big deal. It's changing the minds and wills of people that are dealing with the technology is the bigger problem. You know, seems like a very common sense and straightforward thing, but deploy schedule, the more that you deploy your software, the more likely you're going to root out potential problems over time. And folks who are afraid of deploying their software or do it at very long intervals are setting themselves up for failure in the long run. So would you classify yourself in the camp of don't deploy on Fridays? Oh, <laughs> well, I kind of walked into that, didn't I? <laughs> no, I actually, I am pretty much in charity majors court with that whole thing. It's like, if you are building up the right systems and practices around deploying, then what day of the week you deploy doesn't make any difference. It's really more about, you know, what safety checks have you put in? Uh, what's the level of risk that you're bringing on with the deployment you're about to do? But if you've built the right tools and processes over time, deploying on Friday is going to be the same as deploying on Mondays or Wednesdays. So, It's been interesting over the years working with different types of clients. I work in consulting world and there's clients that are very, very reluctant to just allowing us to deploy when we feel like we need to and, and like wanting to batch things up for, I'm like, this is making things so much more complicated because now we've got like six things rolling out at once. And there's a lot of risk that one of those things could be the thing that triggers something we have to do with a worry about needing to potentially roll back more than you need to roll back, you know, and that can definitely be a challenge there. Um, one of the things you, you mentioned there around knowing that simplicity becomes complex over the time. Do you think some of that just happens because of there's just a lack of time, enough time to spend on thinking about how to continue making things simple or evolving things in a simple manner. Because as we know, as businesses requirements change, things start to pivot around and you start working out these new edge cases and new tacking on new little features here and there to an existing platform or piece of code, necessarily maybe on a more smaller level. What sort of things do you think starts to contribute to that happening? Being is it? Do you feel like it's inevitable or does it feel like it takes a lot of conscious effort to kind of avoid that? Well, it's inevitable if your application is being used, right? Like if there are people actually using your software and they're going to have new needs over time, you know, that's definitely going to be a factor. If no one's using it, then maybe it's not inevitable. You just stay in stasis for, you know, 
centuries to come. I think a lot of it revolves around not having the time because engineers don't always focus on how to communicate the issue of, say, technical debt to other stakeholders in the business. So, you know, if you just go and say, hey, we need to fix this stuff up because technical debt and the person on the other side is looking at you like you have six heads because they're like, we have features that customers actually want. What is this technical debt you're talking about? What What's it going to do for me if you fix that problem now? Um, I think we've definitely learned over the past several years about how to communicate these types of items better, but it's still a bit of a black art to most of how do you make the space for addressing technical debt? How do you communicate the impact of the business? So that's something I think engineers in general have to get better at over time. And teams and companies overall have to start learning how do you make time for these things? Because it's just like car maintenance. Like you have to take your car into the shop, you know, get the brakes checked, you know, check the oil lines, like same thing with your software. And that's what I spend a lot of my time doing is trying to upfront figure out what's the release cadence that we're going to have for a particular application and how can we build in the time to maintain the software as we go. So for example, at Harvest, uh, we use a process that's basically um, just an iterative process where we have six weeks of development plus a two week cooldown. So in a given year, we'll have six of those cycles. Well. I made the argument that we should reserve the last cycle for technical debt because as a B2B software, towards the end of the year, we're not going to be selling as much. Folks, you know, the, our customers are going to be, you know, looking at plans for the next year. People are going on vacation. So that's a nice natural time to not worry about pushing out features to customers and instead go back and tackle a lot of the technical debt we've accrued over the year. So that's one approach of many. But you have to build that time into the process rather than treating it as something you deal with as it comes up, um, because it's just harder to sell that all the time. But if you say, this is what we're doing, here's why we're doing it, and it's part of the process, and you back it up, you like, don't let you know the product team come over and bully you and say, no, no, we got to get this feature in, figure out ways to build that into your process so it becomes natural over time. When you're talking about your six-week cycles and then you have a two-week cooldown, what's happening in a cooldown out of curiosity? Sure. So during the cooldown period, I, I try to get folks to stop working on the feature. There's always polishing that people want to do. So instead, I'll say, well, look in the backlog. There's probably tons of bug fixes that need be have that are labeled. So just go grab those. Um, if you want to experiment with a new tool or technology, that's a perfect time to do it. If you just want to do some research on an area. So anything not related to the feature just working on for the past six weeks is the ideal. Now, if we're at that point where the feature is almost ready for shipping, but we couldn't finish in the six weeks, we may do the sort of like, how much time is this going to take? And if it's like less than a week, then we might say, okay, go, you can eat into your cool down for that. But ideally it's do something different. Right. You know, when you talk about trying to like carve out time, say for the end of the year and have that last, I'm guessing six week sprint or whatever, however you rephrase that, do you try to estimate how long these things are going to take. And so you're trying to use that as a time box and like, we need to get these things done within this six week period. Otherwise, because we're going back into features. So get as much as we can done, or like I'm imagining there being things that might be take longer than that, potentially that they have to wait a year, potentially. Uh, no. So that, there are definitely things that will come up before that last cycle of the year. Um, so it's really just a matter of people describing what the issue is in enough detail that we can prioritize it. So if it's something that's, hey, you know, this is going to blow up in like two months if we don't address it, that will just get elevated to a project that we address in the 
near-term cycle rather than pushing it off. So it's always a prioritization. Um, our process is a modified version of Basecamp ShapeUp. So we do a lot of the same practice there where we have a betting table and we prioritize the different pitches. But engineering only things are also considered uh, part of that process, not just the things that come from product. So I get a big hand in saying, hey, we got to tackle this now rather than later. You know, you're you're also touching on how as a, as an industry and developers haven't historically done a really good job of communicating the the value or the benefits of addressing technical debt. What would how would you define technical debt now? And do you feel like it's evolved, say, from 10, 15 years ago? That's a good question because I think technical debt is one of the most overloaded phrases in our industry right now. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, I consider technical debt to be short-term decisions that need to be revisited. So most of the time, technical debt comes from making an implementation choice that was good in the moment, but has long-ranging effects that are going to start being felt. You know, I don't think technical debt is the bad thing that everybody thinks it is. Like, you're making a conscious choice. Like, if you're doing agile development and you're, you know, trying to do things in iterations, you do have to make those short-term choices. Like, this can only be done given the time we have. So, you know, we're going into it eyes wide open, but at some point we're going to have to revisit this. Um, so I think that's really what technical debt embodies is revisiting choices of the past that may have seemed good in that moment, but are now going to cause some ramifications for you later. You know, bugs are technical debt too. And, you know, I think almost everybody has some sort of prioritization scheme with their bugs, like showstoppers, like this is going to cause massive crashes or data loss, jump in and fix it now. Uh, this feature isn't working as expected for this class of users or people with um, this environment. That's a different class. And you make decisions along the way whether you're going to address that bug or not. And I think the same thing goes with bigger things like architectural choices, technology choices. All of them have to be re revisited. So to me, technical debt is just bugs on a different scale. How do you coach your, I mean, maybe making an assumption, but do you coach your engineers on how to like advice you offer them on how if they have some ideas and they need to be able to present it or generally are they just needing to state their case to you but are they oftentimes working with say product teams to say we need to get this and we need to prioritize this and so what kind of advice do you tend to offer them on how to like rethink about how to approach it versus this is a mess we need to take care of it and then the product team being like did you make the mess? I don't understand. You know, like I didn't, I didn't ask for a mess when we asked for these features. So uh, what sort of advice do you end up tend to like offer them? And for those listening who might feel like, oh, product's not really listening to me. I brought it up, but they're, they're just saying not right now because I don't really understand what you're asking me to approve right now. Yeah, so it's funny. Um, most of the advice I give the engineers is if you're feeling uncomfortable answering that question, the best words you can have at your disposal are talk to Kevin. <laughs> That's why I tell, them, <laughs> tell product managers, ah, just have them talk to me. Uh, because I feel my role is actually to be a good partner to product and be the translator a lot of times of explaining, well, of course we didn't mean to create bugs or make it not work as expected, like, but that's what happens, that's reality. Um, so I usually take on the role of saying, here's the reason why we need to address this. You know, Here's the history on how it happened and why this turned out to be a bad thing. So I usually use myself not so much as a shield, but like I said, as a translator to the rest of the business as to why these things happen and why they occur. And most of the time it's well received because product people understand their limits too. A lot of them say, you know, I don't understand how this stuff works, so explain it to me. So as long as I'm not stomping into their office or stomping onto their Zoom meeting and saying, what the hell, you know, 
my guys say, you just have to understand it and move on. Um, no, my job is to explain it and make sure they're comfortable with it and make sure they understand the trade-offs. And I think I find that balance between the engineers being able to explain to them exactly what they're doing and me giving the context makes things work a lot smoother over time. Have you found yourself in environments where um, engineers on the team may feel like they need to get permission to do certain things like improving the test suite or writing tests, things like of that nature where they're like, well, that doesn't seem to be a priority of someone else made a decision. So we don't really do that. Have you, have you, have you, have you encountered that at all? Oh, I, I encounter it all the time. And <laughs> there's sometimes I'm like, why would you think I would actually say no to you doing something that's better? Now there's a fine line and I understand why a lot of engineers get into that. I'd rather you just tell me what to do rather than me take ownership because certain types of maintenance is kind of spit and polish, right? You can spend a lot of time just working over and over and trying to make it as good as can be, but there's diminishing returns. So I think if people have run into the, why are you doing that sort of response most of the time, then they sort of crawl back into their shell and like, okay, you know, can I do this? Or you tell me what to do and I'll do it so I don't get yelled at. Uh, I think there's a balance in between where I want to give my teams as much autonomy as possible, but I also want them thinking along certain lines, like, you know, sometimes good enough is good enough, right? We don't have to aim for perfection all the time, but if we can show a material difference between where we were and where we are now, then I leave it to you to sort of make those decisions. Um, I get this with stuff that's in our backlog right now, you know, about, hey, should we remove jQuery or should we change from using handlebars? I'm like, I don't care. I'm like, is it gonna make things better for you or is it gonna improve the product? Like, hey, we won't be downloading tons of libraries um, as we were before. Sure, you could make some of those calls. Now, if it's, hey, we want to rewrite everything in Haskell, yeah, I think we're going to have to have a conversation about that. Like, that's not the sort of thing I want you to just go off and do. So there is a balance, and I think the best way to find that is a little bit through trial and error. Like, people should be empowered to ask, and then it's my job to give them the reasons why yes or no. So if I'm saying no, I'm going to say, here's why no. It's not just me being a jerk and you know not wanting you to do things, but this is the reason why this isn't important at this time. So you have to build that rapport with your team and they eventually start to understand this is what's important, this is what's not, they can make better choices. For those listening who may not be in a leadership role and are part of a team and they're feeling like, well, I have some ideas, but I, I've heard, like I might've pitched it, like maybe we can, yeah, maybe finally remove jQuery from the app or something. And, or maybe they're just being like, well, I, I guess we're stuck with this forever because it's always been here and nobody else seems to care about it. What advice could you offer them if like, someone listening is like, hey, I, actually, I do want to bring that up, and, but I think last time I brought it up, it didn't feel like there was any reception or wasn't a lot of motivation by anyone else on the team. So like, if they don't care, why should I care type of concern? How can you help? Do you have any advice on them, how they can kind of maybe reapproach that with their team? Sure. One of the things I've seen is that people sort of hang on to history. Definitely experiencing this here at Harvest is that if you've worked with other leaders in the past who may have been resistant to change or resistant to hearing your ideas, people internalize that. And the first thing you have to do is sort of break them out and make them realize you're not that same way. So for example, um, when I first joined Harvest, I saw that we have a legacy rep, Ruby on Rails application, that there wasn't a lot of architectural change that I saw over time. So I actually started discussions with the team, just actually created a discussion in GitHub and said, you know, what do we think about 
client-side applications and using JavaScript across the board? Uh, what do we think about using things other than Ruby on Rails? And I just seeded those discussions with the team to get their insights, get their opinion, and to show them, like, I want to hear what you think. And, you know, as long as you set the sort of boundary with them that I may not agree with everything you say, but I'm going to listen, that works because people may feel like they're not being heard and you want to give them that forum to be talk about these things in a safe way. So I definitely do that. And I tell people repeatedly, like, look, I don't agree with you on this. I understand what you're saying. And, but here's my perspective. And you just have conversations. That's the root of everything is building trust and rapport with folks. Over time, then you're able to sort of get from them and get them pushing things to you a lot more because they build that comfort level with you. That's interesting. You, know, you don't have to go into all the details if you want to, but I, I'm curious about those types of situations where companies have made a, a long time investment, say, into a certain stack or platform. And you know, I can also imagine that there's a lot of concerns for companies like, well, bringing in lots of different tooling into a system or not can be good, bad, depending on how the team can, you know, how many different technologies can we can we support in parallel or not? Um, so that, that being, a, I think, can be an important one. And I've talked to I was recently talking to someone at Intercom and they were talking about how they really, really try to like, they're very resistant to introducing new technology and like, we just got to keep up with the, what's going on with the, with the current platform so that we're not falling too far behind on like what's latest and greatest and just being like on some legacy version of old, like how that platform used to work 10, 15 years ago. How do you balance that, those types of conversations where it's a little bit about like, I would imagine hiring Ability can be definitely be a thing depending on the platforms you're choosing, and there's also keeping engineers. Certain types of engineers are maybe happy to, or they're super excited about getting to dabble with new technologies. Um, so I've seen, I've also talked to a lot of like people where like they've seen the consequences of like the engineers driving. Let's try this new technology, and then all of a sudden, like five years down the road, they've got a bunch of things, and they're like, okay, but now we have this mess of a bunch of different systems, and we're we're not just there's no consistency here, and they're trying to figure out how to bring that all back together in some, some cohesive way. So there's a lot of different ways that can kind of pan out. So what's kind of your take on how to navigate those conversations amongst the team? Well, it's lucky that I literally just wrote an article for the lead developer on exactly <laughs> this topic of you know, introducing new technologies. You basically have to figure out what are your thresholds for adding new technologies to your stack, right? Uh, you know, I know some folks want to go full polyglot and use every technology under the sun. Others are like, no, we're using this one toolkit, the hammer that we've got, and everything's going to become a nail. I think the truth is always somewhere in between. But for adding things to your production technology stack, I definitely am a fan of the idea of things like innovation tokens. So giving yourself a way to limit the amount of new things that you add to your stack over a given period. So if you're giving yourself three innovation tokens per year, then, okay, great, you're gonna try out Rust and you're gonna try serverless and you're gonna use Kafka. But now as soon as somebody comes in and says, hey, we should use you know, this new graph database, you can say, we've used our innovation tokens for the year. Like We can maybe play with that on the side and consider it for next year, but we're not adopting anymore. So I think that's a good strategy to minimize the amount of risk that you're adding into your technology stacks. Most companies still have a ton of tooling that they use internally. And I always say that's a great opportunity to play with new things in a non-critical path fashion. So if you want to come up with some new automation tooling or some new alerting stuff and you want to try out a bunch of different technologies, 
it's safer to do that. You still have a maintenance aspect because you have to maintain your internal tools as much as your production code, but at least that gives you an outlet for those people on your team who want to play with the new stuff and give them a way to do it without just saying no. You know, at Harvest, we are primarily a Ruby on Rails shop, and I have folks on my team that think I hate Ruby on Rails because I keep bringing up all these other new technologies. And it's more about, do I hate the technology or do I hate the ideology? And it's always more about the ideology. Like, I don't hate Ruby on Rails. I wrote Ruby for a while. I wasn't a Rails guy, but I wrote Sinatra apps, Ruby apps. Um, So I'm familiar with the community and the ideology. And that's really the thing that I want to push back against. Again, when you have a mature code base, you've gotten so accustomed to the code, the tools that are used in that community, that you might have blinders on. And I want to take the blinders off and say, hey, this is a 15-year-old application. We use Ruby on Rails since before 1.0. Things have changed in that time frame, and sometimes it's good to take a step back and say, if we were doing this today from scratch, would we do all the same things we're doing now? And the answer is probably not. So even if we're going to continue being a Ruby on Rails shop, getting some exposure to different technologies and different ways of doing things might actually make you a better Rails developer because now you've seen other ways of doing things and you can see what of Rails should we use and what time should we go outside of Rails, and that makes the team better as a whole. I'm not familiar with the, the kind of the concept of uh, innovation tokens. Can you dig into that a little bit more? And like, is that just like a, a concept? Is that like on an individual level or is that on the team level? Like the team has three innovation tokens a year or individually? Uh, it's generally more of a team thing um, just because programming is a team sport at this point. So uh, it's definitely more at the scale of for your business, for your application, um, how much innovation can you introduce into it without destabilizing things? So Basically, if you're given a budget, which is what the tokens are, it's three, five, whatever, that's how much you have to use for that given period of time. That helps rein in maybe some of the stronger impulses of like, let's grab everything because you start with one thing and then you pull out some other dependent technology and another one and another one. And now you've got 20 new things into your code base that you have to maintain and manage over time. And that's obviously not sustainable. So the idea of allocating tokens and saying, okay, we've used this at the team level. Now we've used another one okay, we've hit the ceiling, is a way to just sort of give you some boundaries and prevent you from shooting yourself in the foot, face, or whatever. Nice. Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks for uh, digging into that a little bit more. I was kind of curious about that. Are, there, are those any other, like, based off of any sort of relative size? Is it just, or is it just more like three innovation tokens this year? Or, like, there might be, uh, maybe, say, rewriting in, a, in Haskell. Would that be, like, a two- type of token thing situation or it's you try to keep it one-to-one so you know one thing per token um rel- size isn't necessarily relative it's just is it net new um to what you currently have um you know that said though there's a big difference between adding a new library from npm to adding kafka like they're obviously big differences so you have to have some discussion around it but the idea is um it should be a net new thing to your stack and try to limit the amount. We'll be back with our interview with Kevin in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment just to say thank you, yes you, for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Also, do you know someone that I should be interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email with to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, let's get back to our interview with Kevin Stewart. 
one of the things I'm always curious about, and you mentioned like uh, deployment cycles and frequency. Are there other types of data metrics that you find valuable to track to kind of get a good sense of the the health of your software delivery cycle? Honestly, over the years, the time to, to deploy has always been the most helpful to me, mainly because I can't control the fact that, you know, something may go wrong once we've deployed to production. I can't control how long it's going to take for me to get the fix out. So I've always tried to optimize, you know, how quickly can we get things deployed because something can go wrong. I don't know how long it's going to take to identify the fix, but once it's ready, I want to know that within minutes it can go out. Um, so that's been the biggest metric that I've uh, gone for. You know, depending on what the application is, who the audience is, the other metrics fall into play, but that's the one constant is time to deploy. Nice. So do, does your team have any kind of unique rituals that they follow outside? You know, you, you've mentioned using like ShapeUp and kind of make more do, doing your own form of that, but on like a day-to-day or week-to-week basis that your team has kind of evolved together that you feel like works really well for you? Not specifically. Um, when I came in, there were no rituals other than the cycles process that they had. So I just maintained that. And now that we've broken up, we have two different software engineering teams, plus our operations team and quality team. I try to let each team sort of do their own thing. Like they're different works. So you pick the rituals for your team that works best. The constant is, you know, our actual cycles process and then some basics, of course, you know, got to check your code into GitHub test things on staging before I move it to production. That's about it. I'm not a big fan of a lot of rituals because I think trying to shove everything into a one-size-fits-all type of model doesn't work. Um, So let the teams determine, given a particular outcome, what's the best way to get to that outcome for them rather than prescribing it for them. Interesting. Do you, um, when it comes to things like pull requests or does your team do any, a lot of, pairing, mob programming, things like that of any nature, or is it primarily individual work and then maybe some PR collaborations at time? I'd say um, there are definitely several folks on the team who are big on pairing, and so there's a lot of folks that do pair. I don't, again, I don't mandate it, because um, when I wrote code, I hated pairing and having somebody over my shoulder, so I just want to elbow them <laughs> if they're near me. Um, there, we definitely have PR reviews, so you know, at least two people reviewing PRs before they get merged. All that existed before I came on, so I just let it go. And I think over time, there will be new rituals that actually come into play. But I want that to be driven by the team as opposed to top-down driven by me. Hmm, interesting. That's, has, how has the pandemic influenced how your team's collaborating and working together? I don't, I don't recall if Harvest was remote much or at all before know about the logistics of the organization. Yeah, Harvest has been pretty much remote for us since the beginning. I mean, we have an office in New York, but even when we had the office, very few people went in. So we've pretty much been a remote first company for the majority of our life. But the pandemic still has an impact because we would have an in-person summit twice a year where everybody would come in and, you know, do activities, sort of reconnect with folks. And missing that has definitely impacted folks a lot. Like, the number one complaint is when are we going to have summit again in person? People just want to see people and be be around their coworkers. So that's probably been the biggest toll. But luckily, because we've been remote first, there hasn't been a lot of adapting that we've had to do because of the pandemic. Do you kind of have strong opinions about how much collaboration happens in real time versus asynchronous types of forms of communication? 
I'm a strong proponent of if you're going to be remote first, you got to lean hard into asynchronous, whereas the in real time thing is for things like our summit, where it's like you have to reconnect with people to realize that when that PR comes in where it's worded a certain way and you think this person's a jerk, you remember, no, I had dinner with this person and they're a really nice person. They told me all about their family. So you need the in-person for that. Uh, but I don't think collaboration is specifically something you have to do in real time synchronized. It's better if you're used to it, but if you're going to be in a room environment, you have to just get comfortable with the asynchronous nature of things. So, you know, I try to force people like, hey, let's not have too many meetings that require people to, you know, adapt to time zones. And um, if something can be written in a document, let's write in a document, not have to rely on remembering words somebody spoke. So I try to push as much collaboration into GitHub issues, Google Docs as much as possible and ensure that we maintain that over time. Interesting. Yeah, I'm just curious how, like, there's, I feel like there's a, there's a, either this consistent complaint for years of engineers that, like, they hated email in a lot of ways, right? Like, don't put things in email, but then we've got Slack for live chat all the time, and that could be difficult to keep up with as well. And then, and then approaching, try to use things like some forms, different ways of using asynchronous communication to slow things down, whether that's email or some applications and stuff that you do for that. It's just a constant battle, I feel like, of developers trying to find, uh, get into that state of flow, I think, that we've used to talk about a lot. I don't know if that's a thing that people talk about enough anymore, um, where you just kind of can focus on something for several hours at a time would be kind of nice, I think. Uh, how has, how is, if you reflect on your time in the industry over the years, you know, as you moved into leadership roles, having had been an uh, engineer yourself over the years, what do you remember about that transition phase from, oh, I'm not an individual con contributor, I need to find um, some way to assess my impact or what I accomplish on a regular basis when I'm not necessarily producing, you know, I'm not turning out some tickets and pushing them to production. Like how, given your kind of experience in the years over, over the years, so I've talked to people that are kind of like new engineering managers, they've been doing it for a year or two, and that's a, it seems to be that those first few years of that transition becomes really murky. And as they're like, oh, I used to feel like I was really competent and now I'm maybe not so much. And then what was that like for you? Well, I still feel like I'm not that competent anymore, <laughs> to be honest. Um, it's a hard shift. And I've you know, coached a lot of engineering managers through that transition as well, um, because it's true. As a manager, you don't have as much tangible output that you can point as like, this is what I've been putting my energy into. Here's the result. Uh, the things that managers work on are on a much longer time horizon. So it might be months, if not a whole year or more, before the results of what you've been working on are take shape. And coming from the, I checked the code in, it deployed, there it is. You know, that's a big gap for people to sort of adjust to seeing the results of their work. I think Paul Graham wrote an essay on this about, you know, the maker schedule versus manager schedule. And it's a reflection that our work is different, which is the number one piece of advice I give to, say, engineers transitioning to management. It's a different job. It's what you're expected to do, what you're responsible for is completely different. So you can't look for the thing at the end of the day that justifies the work you've been doing. It's just not going to be like that. And whereas an engineer, you want to hoard as much time, you know, sequential time as possible to get into that state of flow and to be able to focus, Manager schedule is completely interrupt driven. Like I live off my calendar because I know there are things that are scheduled and then there are things that are coming in and a different bunch of different forms that I have to respond to. And the 
mistake or the thing that people have to adjust to is now that you're getting interrupt driven, you don't want to push that those interrupts onto your programmers because you know they need to focus. So there's a tendency where like if you're especially if you're getting things from your bosses, this idea that you have to respond immediately, you know, make everybody else drop everything. And that's actually the disruption. You're, you're becoming the disruption at that point. Um, whereas now I have to filter everything that comes into me and sort of prioritize what does need to be addressed immediately. What can I address in two days? What can I address in two weeks? And start bucketing things in that way and realizing when I can get information myself and address it versus when I do have to interrupt one of my engineers to get the information. So it becomes a lot more about prioritizing and sequencing things than it is about just responding to every little thing as it comes up, which takes a while to get used to. No, it does. And it's, it's been an interesting thing over the years, just watching how people transition to that. And there's a lot of really great software developers that can become really great managers. And there's a lot of really great software man- or developers that probably should never, ever become a manager. And I think it's like this weird tendency to think like, well, you do something for such a long time, 10, 15, 20 years or whatever plus, and then you're like, at some point I'll be managing a team of people just like me, right? And then like, I'll get to make the decisions. I get to like, you know, like I'll be the smartest experienced developer and I'll, you know, but that's, that's not always the case. And then, or I've also seen developers get really skeptical about having a manager that wasn't say necessarily a programmer before. But they're maybe like so they're like well they're how could they how could I possibly relate to this person who didn't go through the struggles of being a software engineer you know whatever that but do you have a strong opinion about whether or not teams need to be led by someone that has a deeper knowledge of the technology? Well, I have strong opinions about lots of things, <laughs> but particularly on that, yes. So I think if you're a first level manager, so if you're directly managing engineers. Uh, I have yet to see a non-technical manager do that role really well. For good or for bad, a lot of software engineering is respect-driven. And part of that respect is, do you actually understand what I do? So engineering managers who can talk the talk with their engineers, even if they can't necessarily write the code as well, but they at least understand sort of, this is the problem we're trying to solve. These are the appropriate technologies involved and can sort of be the BS filters, like if engineers do want to slip that Haskell in when it's not needed. Um, I think you do have to have that experience and technical competency at a first level management. Above that, I think it's a law of diminishing returns. Like at a director level, you're not gonna be involved in the day-to-day stuff as much. You still have to have some basic, you know, bare minimum technology understanding, but a lot of what you're gonna be doing is gonna be more around strategy, around some of the business needs, sometimes marketing related things and you're just sort of providing some technical expertise on top of that but it's not the same degree as the person writing the code for you know a multi-cluster kubernetes um, application so it's a matter of range and where you fit on the leadership scale hi there do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their ruby on rails application planet argon would love to meet them we're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com referrals. Thanks. 
there advice that you're, you offer to your engineers on your team that are curious about moving, going down a manager path and, or, or at least they're, they're thinking about it and how ways, do you have some like ways that you feel like you're allowed help allow them to experiment with that or to try that out a little bit before, you know, they commit to that. Yeah. So the first thing is I try to tell them, no, you don't want to be a manager. I try to convince <laughs> them otherwise um, because I think the industry has done a bad job of communicating the differences between the individual contributor role and the management role. And, you know, it sounds just like one of those sayings, but it's a different career path. And that's what I want to make sure I spend time with them up front saying, look, if you really enjoy writing code, that's not what's expected of you as a manager. Like you can still write some code, um, but I definitely don't want it to be on the critical path. Um, you can write tests, you can write little utilities, whatever, but that's not your job. Your job's the people in the process um, anymore. But when someone does really, you know, convince me that they want to go down this path, I'm more of a fan of giving them tasks that are in that job sphere and seeing how they do for a while before officially moving them in because you know, maybe it takes three months or six months and then they realize, no, this isn't for me. <laughs> you know, I thought I wanted it, but I didn't. Well, okay, well, at least you got some insight into doing it. And we haven't created a bad manager by putting you in prematurely. Uh, other times I do it, um, I used to do it a lot more when I took vacations, was I let somebody fill in for me for a week and almost without fail, by the time I came back, they'd like, oh my God, how do you do this? <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, how do you deal with all these people with all these crazy things that they come to you with? I'm like, that's what they pay me for. <laughs> That's why I'm doing it. Um, so yeah, I do try to find opportunities if people express interest to let them do some part of the job, get a taste for it uh, unofficially before we make a decision about whether or not they want to move into that role. I'm, in fact, I'm doing that right now. Nice. Thanks for uh, kind of sharing a little bit of background on that. I'm always curious how different teams are able to uh, support that and give people some opportunity. Like, I don't know if you do anything like have interns or junior level people coming in and like the things that we've tried to do in my organization is to like, well, if we have internships coming in on a, like a consistent basis, almost every quarter, everybody's going to have a chance to like provide some mentorship. It's different than managing, but then we'll usually like, okay, this person on the team is going to be responsible for overseeing those, those interns experience while they're here for, you know, six, eight weeks or whatever. And so in a way that's like, they're kind of like the manager for those people, but not, you know, so it's kind of like testing out the water a little bit. And so it's, it's always an interesting, it's not the same as managing people that are like full-time employees and stuff like that, but at least getting people finding a ways to get a lot of people to dabble in it a little bit and at least work on those mentorship and this, the, the people stuff that are often, you know, that has nothing to do with whatsoever. You know, they're not helping them figure out code. They're talking about career trajectory for interns and like coaching them on like how they're going to apply for jobs and things like that, you know, as they move on from their internship. So do you, are you, does Harvest and other organizations that you've worked in been able to implement healthy intern apprenticeship type programs? Uh, Harvest, we're going to be revisiting that probably next year. We have had interns in the past, but it was never a real formal process. Um, so I'm going to be shaping something up that's a lot more formal and make sure that we have a path of getting those interns, you know, through their internship program and then into potential jobs at Harvest, or at least definitely preparing them for jobs elsewhere. Um, if it doesn't work out in our org, if we don't have the headcount capacity. In other places, you have mixed results with interns. The thing that I've learned the most is that you have to have the bandwidth 
to actually mentor them. Um, I've seen a lot of companies, you know, they like the idea of having interns and they like being able to promote the fact that, oh, we have internships. But if you don't have the bandwidth in your organization, especially with the engineers who are going to be doing the mentoring, then you're setting the interns up for failure. And, you know, you don't want to be responsible for damaging these folks at the earliest stages of their career. So I actually had experience with Ada Academy. So we got interns by partnering with them bringing folks in, um, we set up a whole program We're like, hey, you're gonna actually have something that ships at the end of this internship. It's not gonna be sort of, you know, busy work or grunt work that we don't wanna do. It's like, nope, there's a target, we're gonna launch this, you know, and have them involved working just like the rest of the engineers and not treating them as others um, inside the organization. So that worked really well, but that also emphasized the, you gotta have bandwidth for your engineers to do this because if they're splitting their focus, it's, you're, the interns are gonna lose in the end. Yeah. Like, definitely appreciate that, and it's uh, it was something that we felt like we had to, because we've been doing consistently for about I think about four or five years now, and we do a similar thing where we work at the boot camp, and they basically feed us people, you know, every quarter almost. And so it's like, okay, we have a program, we do this, we you know, it does kind of sometimes touch on the bandwidth thing. Some some quarters, it's like eh, this was a little rough, but we're always like we're going to keep doing this in the sense of like we're and we have a lot of check in points about how we're going to throughout the process of like, are we, are we making sure that, are we spending enough time here? Do we need to like re-strategize on where they're focused? But, and then again, similar kind of ethos that we don't want them working on any weird pet projects or things that are never going to see the flight of day. Cause that's not, that's not helpful. That's not, that's not giving them a real experience. Like knowing that they can go and work on something and hopefully get it launched by, before they leave, that's going to be a great conversation that they can have when they're applying for their, you know, a job somewhere and be like, Hey, look at, that's also another thing we've been able to do that. We've been very intentional about saying that it's not a hiring pipeline for us because we're just fo- focusing on, we're working on mentorship skills uh, internally and we're helping get people out there to do that as a, a way of contributing back to the community. Not saying we'll never hire someone that, but it, I've also realized that if we hire them, then it makes it difficult for us to keep offering the program to people in the future. Because then it's like, well, I can't just keep hiring people because I don't, I don't have the budgets for that either. So, so it's it's been an interesting experience over the years. But anyways, great, glad to hear that that's something on your radar and interesting to hear some of the ways you've kind of approached that in the past. Yeah, that's something I'd say. You know, that especially with going the boot camp route, um, the one thing I learned was that. Companies really have to think about this as they're not just interns, they're engineers. Like if you treat them as something different than the rest of your organization, that's going to have an impact. So even from the moment, say, I was interviewing the candidates from the boot camp, you know, like I interviewed them like I'd interview anybody else. And I noticed other companies were doing all the usual mind teasers and, you know, algorithmic stuff. And I was like, let's build a system together. And with every candidate that I went through where we Basically, I think the system was a photo sharing application. Like, how do we build one of those? And it exposed all the things that they didn't know. Like, they may have learned Ruby on Rails and a little bit of front end development, but they didn't understand how background processing worked and how to do event queues and things like that. So we'd whiteboard all that stuff out. And I got more feedback and thanks from folks of like going into that because they had never seen that stuff. They'd never been exposed to it. So you have to go into it from the mindset of you're, this is a way of growing engineers. Um, so think of them as engineers from the very beginning versus people who don't have experience that, you know, you're going to use for some set purpose. That's the real skill that you're developing on your side is how to grow engineers. Because a lot of companies are like, oh, we want senior engineers. We want senior engineers. Well, there's a finite set of them. You can't get any more unless you learn how to grow them from not senior engineers. And I think that's the 
big mindset shift that we have to have is how do we grow people into these positions rather than just assume there's a pool out there and we can always dip into it and get what we want. Yeah, that whole challenge of uh, talking to a lot of companies where they're primarily just all senior engineers and they've never been able to figure out, like, we don't have the time, we don't have the bandwidth to bring in junior or mid-level people because, like, I'm already too busy. How could I possibly help get someone else up to speed on this stuff. Right. And now I'm like, I'm, I'm not, we're not going to get as much done, you know? So like for those listening that might be thinking like, Oh yeah, that sounds, I'm, I'm that senior developer that does not have time. Any messages of encouragement you can offer them on how to like think beyond their current capacity. Sure. I'd say the first thing you should do is look at what you're actually doing, because I think we rush to promote people to senior but much like you know, switching from an individual contributor to manager, we haven't told them what the job is. A lot of senior engineers think their job is to work on the most interesting problems and to write the most code. That's actually not the job. You should be spending more of your time mentoring junior engineers, providing insight and providing feedback on things, but not necessarily doing everything yourself. And I think that's the thing. If you feel like you don't have the bandwidth, it's like, well, look at how you're spending your time. If you're spending your time in front of the editor all day long and committing everything, then maybe that's the problem. Delegate some of that work to someone more junior or identify more junior people who could be doing this work and help grow them and get them able to do it. Your job is really about amplification, not being able to do everything yourself. How can you get others to do things through you and you provide the guidance? I like that. Your job is about amplification. Just a couple of quick last questions for you. So is there an industry trend that you've found yourself feeling skeptical about? Hmm, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny, like, I think I've had this saying for the longest time, it's like, uh, all technologies suck, they just suck differently. And I find over and over, I'm still interested in everything that comes up. So, you know, paying attention to WebAssembly and serverless and all this other stuff. But at the end of the day, I wonder if we really have the ability to decide which technologies are appropriate for what we're doing. For 90% of the things I see people doing, they don't need any more than basic web development skills, but yet they're focusing on Kubernetes and they're focusing on serverless and they're focusing on you know edge cloud computing. You're basically still delivering a web page to a device. You, a web server, a database, like classic LAMP stack, or if you want to update a little bit, fine, but um, I think we're getting into this mode where just jumping on to the next technology bandwagon rather than focusing on what do you need to solve the problem at hand. And sometimes you need a fraction of the technologies you're actually looking at. So um, I'm not necessarily skeptical of any particular technology. I'm skeptical of the approach we're taking with technologies. It's interesting. The, uh, it kind of, that resonates with me. And I'm knowing that you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're, we're essentially presenting forms to people to fill out some details. We save some details in a database somewhere. We show them back to people. They can edit that. They can, we're collating data. We're doing interesting. Most stuff is a bunch of CRUD project, you know, right? So it is interesting when we start talking about all these other platforms and, you know, tooling, I often wonder that sometimes the kind of speaking to the, um, just as thinking about the industry, one of the things that's always, I found it interesting is just how, you know the, the teams that are that talk that are able to do like really good storytelling on their technical blogs and about like their engineering blogs about like this is what we needed to accomplish like this is what you know Shopify is doing or this other large organization and this is how they're doing all these things so they can speed up their deployment process or have all these you know observe observation 
large companies have the resources and they have the challenges that actually present needing those things. And then I talked to some small teams where it's like they've got two engineers and they're trying to figure out like how to like do this similar type of thing. And I'm like, what is, what do you, what, where's the app? When are you spending time on the actual application that you're trying to launch for your users and you're talking about infrastructure, like you're worried about scaling and this is what we used to always call just like premature optimization in a way. And so talk to teams are like, okay, we kind of have this mess and nobody knows how to like manage the infrastructure because it's a bunch of new technology that we're trying to wrap our head around. And like, oh, you probably just could have used a couple of servers to do what you're doing there. But, but I'm also then I'm like, well, am I just kind of like the old person in the room now? You know, even I'm not that old, but still it feels like I am sometimes where I'm like, oh, why do you need all this other stuff now? So I feel you there. It's an interesting kind of challenge, but I just kept remind people that as that it's not what other engineering teams do doesn't necessarily mean it should work for you. Cause I think we sometimes, sometimes it's easy to do like, well, if they're doing it, that seems like a safe decision then because they're invested. So that's one less decision I need to worry about. And so, which is, I think a benefit for the industry as well. So going back to before frameworks were super effective and where every project would be like, Oh, which uh, database library are we going to use on this project? You know, versus like, okay, we use this framework. It's got, it's made some decisions for us and that's going to help remove some of the uh, confusion for us going forward on this project. So I try to tell people like, unless you have Google's problems, you probably don't need to use, do everything Google does. And I think that's the thing is like, you look at the people who are successful and you falsely attribute their success to the things that they're using to build. And it's like, no, that isn't it. It's like they evolved into that and it solves their problem at their scale. If you're a 20 person company, you probably don't have the same problems Google's has. So sure, it's good to look at what they do, but you have to be able to discern what's relevant and what's not. And not just say, if I do what they do exactly, I will have a similar level of success, which I think unfortunately is the trap that people fall into. Nice. Well, thanks for uh, kind of digging into that with me as well. Mm -hmm. My last few questions. Is there a non-software, non-technical book that you find yourself recommending to people on a regular basis? Ooh. Yeah, I don't tend to recommend a lot of the technical ones or the engineering leadership ones. A more straightforward business book that I recommend a lot is The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. That's one of my favorites. I think it is such a great insight into how he pivoted a business, um, dealt with the board, dealt with shareholders, dealt with technology challenges. Um, so I think there are just so many lessons packed into a pretty short book. That that's one of my favorites. Nice. And where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development online? <laughs> um, if you really want to, you can follow me on Twitter at KStewart. Um, I tend to talk a little bit about tech. I also sort of just put tweets about uh, different articles that I read. So I'm a big Instapaper. All my articles read them. The good ones I will post on Twitter. And a lot of people follow me just for that. I'm also writing on leaddev.com, so I've been writing a bunch of articles there and a new one coming up soon, which will be about this Ruby on Rails thing, why I hate it or not. So you can also follow me there, but if you follow me on Twitter, you'll get links to everything else I'm doing, whether it's talks or presentations. Excellent. Well, it's been such a delight having you join us today on Maintainable, Kevin. Thank you so much for talking shop with us. Thanks for having me, Robbie. It's been a great having this conversation with you. Hey,